Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Hausman, Assistant Professor of History at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota and your host for today. I'm very excited to be speaking with Dr. Darnella Davis, a lifelong educator, artist, activist, and writer. We'll be discussing her new book, Untangling a Red, White, and Black Heritage, a Personal History of the Allotment Era, which came out with the University of New Mexico Press in 2018. Welcome to the show, Darnella. Oh, I'm glad to be here. We're very glad to have you. Uh, First, why don't we begin, as we traditionally do here on the New Books Network, with just a little bit about yourself. What is your background as a scholar, as a teacher, and as a writer? Uh, Well, I am a firm believer, uh, as John Dewey was, of lifelong learning. And uh, being an observer, an explorer, a discoverer in, in, uh, in learning, um, that's led to a, a number of different careers, uh, some shifts in my career. So my first career uh, was as an artist. Uh, I went to a public exam school in Detroit called Test. Technical High School, uh, and that gave me a wonderful foundation in the visual arts. Uh, when I graduated, I had a scholarship to Parsons School of Design in New York City, which was such a rich environment. And I later uh, went on and got a master's in fine arts at Mass College of Art and Design, and uh, I taught studio arts there. Um, and teaching really opens your eyes to uh, the challenges of providing a decent education. So when we moved to Washington, D.C., I had um, art students who were really struggling, really floundering with the basics of college. And uh, for a number of different reasons, that led me eventually to try to undertake a doctorate in education policy, which I did at, at George Washington University. And there I was really looking at um, finding ways that I, I thought might be helpful for improving opportunities for uh, students to, to have better access to quality education. So uh, being in the nation's capital, you see how good policy really depends on kind of solid research. And if the opportunity uh, window opens, uh, you can kind of undergird uh, policy with, uh, uh, with good research to, to make uh, educational programs better. So I spent many years when I finished my doctorate uh, researching and evaluating programs uh, designed to increase access to rigorous curriculum for underperforming students. And I did a lot of work for the National Science Foundation, a lot of field work, which took me all over the country. And um, when I retired from that job, I... uh, 
had always written, I'd written a lot uh, of technical reports uh, and um, uh, and I always kept a journal as well. So, um, you know, I'd, I'd worked with academics as part of my day job on articles and editing. So I've always had my hand in writing, which is kind of the third uh, third career for me. And uh, so as I, as my manuscript took place, took shape, um, it was helpful for me to join uh, a writer's group where I got a lot of uh, excellent feedback. So from artist to researcher to uh, writer, uh, that's how it's kind of unfolded for me uh, as I continue to uh, learn more and more. Well, let's talk about that manuscript for a second. How did you come to write this book? Where where did the kernel, the, the idea of the, for this book come from? Well, I really didn't set out to write a book. Uh, many moons ago when I was applying for that master's degree, I thought I'd tap into some BIA funding because uh, I had lots of relatives who'd, who'd gotten uh, graduate school uh, educational funding and so I collected the Cherokee roll numbers that I had um, and sent them off expecting that I'd, I'd qualify for some tribal financial aid. And uh, establishing my tribal citizenship ended up taking me on a long and winding journey hmm. uh, that was also full of a lot of rich surprises. Uh, and although I didn't get the funding for my master's um, degree, I discovered that we had uh, many family members who were really remarkable individuals. Uh, and we also had a large trove of materials that they'd safeguarded, safeguarded over the years. Um, and there was also um, a, a lot of fascinating accounts uh, in the National Archives, because when we moved to Washington, finally, um, I had time to look into the National Archives and I just kind of hit the jack jackpot. Uh, so I thought, boy, someone needs to write a book about this family <laughs> uh, of Cherokee and Creek people making their lives in Indian territory. They were really doing a lot of interesting things on that front here. And uh, so I sort of shared, initially shared my findings with my relatives, and they kept sending me more materials and recounting more of what they uh, um, knew about these various stories that were handed down. And many of the relatives are, uh, you know, well into their 90s now. So uh, they remembered a lot. They'd been through a lot. So um, as the years went by, uh, the weight of the stories, the value of their stories became uh, really compelling to me because by then I had sort of finished my doctorate and I knew the value of policy and looking at things through a policy lens. So it, the stories became sort of uh, too important not to write about. Um, and so in the end, I, I felt really a deep obligation 
to write it because I was the one who could connect all the dots. So as you're saying, this is a very deeply personal book. It is in large part a family history, a family story put into a larger historical context. So I got to ask, what was it like writing a book that was so focused on one's relatives and on one's kin and on your family story? Did that make it more of a challenge or did that in some ways maybe ease the process of research and writing? Well, you know, it really was a process of discovery for me. As I had said, my family didn't really talk about uh, their tribal affiliations. And that always was a puzzle to me because they were so fond of going back to their roots that we traveled back to Oklahoma uh, several times a year and their reverence for their elders was just amazing. Um, And yet uh, part of their not talking about it, I think, um, was that they'd sort of been erased. They'd become irrelevant. And um, so I, I was wanting to kind of restore the family's legacy, give them their, their voices, because these were prosperous and capable people. And some of them had even been in the history books, um, but their photos were no longer there. My great, great grandfather's photo used to be in the uh, Muscogee Creek Council House, hung proudly with other uh, key members of the tribe. And, you know, it was taken down and So I heard about this, but uh, couldn't see it. Um, So the the project became kind of a a way of uh, restoring their point of view as minorities. So in the the frame of revising history, going back and telling history, not just from the point of the victors or the elite or the prominent, but retrieving stories of day-to-day people, I thought, well, this is valuable. Um, And so uh, history needs these day-to-day lives, uh, these people to kind of fill in the gaps. And then there was the dimension of uh, their relevance in terms of the policies that, that kind of shaped how they were seen and the land that they had. So it was, it, it was more than a simple family story though. And um, so it, it reflected a kind of moment in, um, in American history of racial mis- mixing and government policies that then kind of papered over the mixed race communities that they belong to. So, um, you know, you're grappling with the complexity of these facts that got distorted or lost. Um, and to, to sort of deconstruct the personal from the political was something I wanted to, to do. Um, and you, you aim to give kind of a more authentic, honest account of these people whose lives were shaped by by this policy. So a a number of my relatives saw these early drafts and 
they were very excited to have their um, much loved relatives being looked at, you know, and thought about and being having their stories collected in a book. And they they let me badger them with a lot of questions and everybody seemed to really be uh, gung ho about it. One aunt sent me 15 pages of stories that she recalled from her um, going around with her her father, uh, who was the veterinarian, and uh, remembrances from those days. So um, what I did is I tried to present my my family's lives kind of fully Mm -hmm. in respect to uh, what historians crave, those primary voices, the primary sources, uh, to hear from the people themselves. Um, But with their successes and their failures, because um, they they were leaders in their community, but they were also human beings. And uh, in that regard, um, some relatives may not have been comfortable with some of the things that I wrote, which was uh, I was mindful of, but most of the people that I wrote about have uh, long passed away. And so, yeah, there were some unique challenges in, in that personal dimension. But if you're going to engage readers, I think you really um, need to tap into the truest version of of what you can what you what you know and i think you do a really good job in the book of using these individual stories as a means of getting at these larger issues in american history i thought that was really one of the book's strengths thank you thank you yeah uh, before we get into some of these individual stories of these these members of your extended family, let's start with a bit of context first, just in case some of our listeners are less familiar with the larger history here. Can you give us sort of a, as much as possible, a brief overview of the long road to allotment in the place that would eventually become the state of Oklahoma? Uh, sure. Um, you know, it's, it's amazing um, that so much of history that that we that's out there has just not been stressed or or uh we're we're just not aware of large swaths of Mm -hmm. of uh, of our past but um so going way back thomas jefferson was among the first uh to consider whether it was suitable for tribal people to live uh amongst citizens of the new republic we'll put it that way um, and it was his one of his ideas was just really to remove them to their own lands to live apart and and really segregated um, to in lands that were designated for them. So as a Virginia farmer, he saw the potential of kind of cultivating the South's lands and the the threat that vision of of, uh, of a fertilely uh, a fertile agricultural south uh, posed by the tribes and villages that were scattered uh, all over the the south 
And those tribes included uh, the Cherokee, Muscogee Creek, Chickasaw, Choctaw, and eventually the Seminole, who were a little bit of an amalgam uh, of a tribe. And those tribes were, were called the, the five southeast tribes or, or the five tribes. So um, in the early 1800s, um, there were a lot of there was a lot of uh, uh, religious uh, consternation about um, the civilization of of the Indian. They, there were religious groups that were keen um, in their conviction that indigenous people really uh, must be civilized through assimilation, which meant you know speaking English. Uh, relinquishing, relinquishing uh, traditional styles of dress and mannerisms and, and embracing Christianity as well as a kind of individualism that was exemplified uh, by gentlemen farmers such as the founding fathers. So while we were grappling with the Indian problem of can we live together or can't we and um, people wanting to kind of clear the lands in the South for the development of agriculture. These religious groups were constantly badgering the government to do, to let them um, help shape uh, the assimilationist movement. Um, but assimilation was a, you know, was not rapid. It was occurring to some extent. Um, so when, when, Andrew Jackson became president. Uh, his experience as an Indian fighter left him feeling as though, yeah, let's let's clear them out. Uh, and it wasn't his idea, but uh, he was very, very much ready to um, uh, accept the idea of removing the Indians from the South to a separate space. And the Louisiana Purchase made uh, opened up a whole lot of uh, land west of the Mississippi, and so um, that was that that became the plan that he signed off on. Uh, and most people know the stories of of the story of the Trail of Tears, where the Indians were uh, rounded up and and pretty much marched west. And uh, a lot of people also know about uh, the lands that were opened up when um, on the eve of, of Oklahoma statehood. Uh, but few people know about the link between those events. And that's the story of allotment. Uh, when the five tribes were removed west, uh, they were given land in fee simple. Uh, in part because they were assumed to be kind of on their way to assimilation. There were many leaders among the Cherokee and the Creek who uh, were very well educated and doing well. And um, so they reestablished their towns in Indian territory, which was set aside for them, um, built their churches, their schools, their businesses, farms, and had newspapers and were, were doing pretty well. Um, but as the Indian Wars came to a close further west around 1890, 
uh, there was a lot of pressure on those tribes to relinquish some of the land that that they'd been given uh, as a result of removal. And, you know, barely a generation or two later, um, officials felt like, well, we gave the Indians all this land, but they're not utilizing it. It's they're farming in common and uh, there's a lot of empty land. Uh, that's something that seems to recur in our American history that, um, oh, this land is empty. It's underutilized. And mm-hmm. so we we should go in and, and do something about it. So the result of that was the Dawes Act or the General Allotment and Severalty Act. Um, and subsequently, the Curtis Act was the one that, that impacted the five tribes directly. And what those acts provided for was uh, the compilation of a census of the tribes, the surveying of the land that they'd been given, and its division uh, into per capita allotments. And the aim of those allotments was to encourage um, individual initiative in establishing homesteads, uh, and then they were also given enough surplus acreage to generate income, enough income to be self-sustaining. So um, it took a number of years to survey the land and uh, decide what was arable. Uh, but once the allotments were made, big surprise, um, 90 million of the original 140 million acres that had been given to the the five tribes was, um, these are air quotes, left over Mm -hmm. um, and thus opened up to settlers in a series of Oklahoma land rushes. So the land all around Oklahoma had been settled and, and, you know, in the 1890s, it was kind of the last little um, bit that, that uh, was controlled by people of color, really. So um, over 100 100 years later, both my Cherokee and Muscogee Creek relations still have their allotment lands. Um, So they can talk about how assimilation and the allotment policies worked out in the long run. Um, uh, In terms of how they were identified at that time of allotment and uh, how they identify now uh, and how they prospered uh, or didn't prosper in regard to those federal policies. So I think their stories reflect the kind of continuing tensions between our democratic ideals of equality and Jefferson or even de Tocqueville's concerns about whether this country of different races um, can actually live together productively and peacefully. I'd like to zoom in and talk about three different groups of people that play an important role in the story that you tell here. And first, you mentioned the Cherokee and the Muscogee Creek people as um, 
two of the important uh, five Southeastern tribes. Uh, could you tell us more about them and a little bit about their history and about, in particular, their role in your family's story? Well, uh, the Muscogee Creek, a Muscogee means creek, uh, so it's Creek Creeks. And they're called that because they were a a confederation of different tribes that lived a bit uh, upstream from the Atlantic coast. And they would travel down in canoes to trade with the early settlers. Um, And they were uh, a loosely grouped language. loosely grouped together by language, although there were some outliers in that as well. Um, and whereas the Cherokee, um, they the Creeks lived uh, sort of around Alabama, uh, the Carolinas, um, Georgia, that area. Uh, the Cherokee were a bit north and west of them, kind of in Kentucky, Tennessee area. And they also they were a different language group, and also, you know, you had uh, tribes, you had villages and clans and and tribal groups, and they really, uh, upon contact with with British and the settlers, formed confederations because uh, the British, the English, uh, I mean, the French and the um, Spanish all wanted to know who's the leader to deal with. So these fairly scattered uh, tribes formed confederacies with somebody that that could then be um, dealt with in terms of an authority. Um, But it's interesting that both for the Cherokee and the, the Creek, some of those initial uh, sub-tribes continue to this day. So there's factionalism uh, within them. And then that's overlaid with another kind of who removed voluntarily from the South. Those are the old settlers and who were the ones who were forced to leave, um, and who were the ones who stayed in the east and hid out in the mountains. So both tribes are an interesting, have interesting stories to tell in terms of their development. And, you know, as they developed, they were called initially the five civilized tribes because they'd had so much contact with traders, settlers, uh, over many years, um, being near the coast, and many spoke uh, many languages and could act as guides and interpreters, and they're large tribes now. They still are large tribes. Um, so they've got this history of being um, negotiators intermediaries among the races, which I think is interesting. And the other group of people that I'm wondering if you could address and talk about a bit is the story of the freedmen and women who lived in Indian Territory and then Oklahoma after the Civil War. Could you tell us more about them and their part in the story? Sure. Um, 
a lot of people, again, don't realize that the tribes were uh, just like other settlers in the South. They developed farms and plantations and uh, needed workers to work that cotton or tobacco or sugar cane. And uh, as they prospered, many of the mixed race individuals, um, they, they bought slaves. And when they removed west of the, Miss, Miss, uh, of the Mississippi, they carried those slaves with them. And on the frontier, um, those slaves continued to be part of the Cherokee and Creek community. So after the Civil War, they were still there. Where else would the, the slaves newly liberated have gone? Uh, they were not part of a state. They didn't, so they, they belong to their communities, but so they are, they get the hyphenation of being Cherokee freedmen or Creek freedmen. And some people may know that, that uh, there's, there's litigation, recent litigation as to whether or not the, the Cherokee freedmen should actually be uh, have all the rights of, of uh, full Cherokee citizenship or not. But those are, those are who the freedmen are in relation to Indian territory rather than the general term of all of the slaves who were freed under emancipation. There are quite a few uh, family members and characters in the book that are worth discussing. And, uh, you provide, actually, at the beginning of the book, a very handy family tree that is helpful for, for the uninitiated like myself to keep track of who is who. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think we have time to talk about all of the family members and the people that you describe and whose stories you tell in detail in the book. But I'd like to uh, kind of spotlight a few of them, if, if we could. And the first two are, and I, I believe I have this right, your great-great-grandparents, uh, Judge Amos Thornton and John Bolin. Can you tell us about them? Yeah, we're really, I, I'm so lucky to have all of this information uh, that, that allows me to trace our family back seven generations. Mm -hmm. uh, but prior to removal uh, in the 1830s, uh, most of the names were not anglicized at that point. And so it's hard to go back further, but I'm, I'm still able to trace two forebears to Tennessee. And one was Amos Thornton, who was a prominent Cherokee and who served as judge at Fort Gibson during the Civil War. Uh, and the other was John Bolin, who was a free Negro, as, as the term was then, uh, who remembered seeing his mother and sister being sold on the block. And they were sold by John's father, the slave owner. Um, and John's father, though, somehow found favor with him and uh, gave him an education. And John was always free and worked uh, in hotels in the north and saved money 
and when it looked as though Oklahoma was going to enter the union or the state of state of Oklahoma would uh, would gain statehood, um, he went to the Cherokee Nation and uh, founded a small hamlet, bought some land and and founded a, a small village called uh, Bowen Spring and started a business of trade, um, selling provisions to farmers and miners in the area uh, near Vanita. And over the years, um, that business grew. Uh, his son, Leonard, built the Bowen Springs General Store, which will be 100 years old in 2021. Uh, so John's son, uh, Leonard, had two sons, Herbert and Charles, and they run the store just now. Uh, but they're getting on in years and, and are preparing to hand it over to the next generation. But uh, Leonard's uh, sister, Henrietta, uh, married a, a, a veterinarian named Joseph Davis, and Joseph and Henrietta um, had six boys, six girls and one boy. And that, that boy is uh, my dad, John Davis. So uh, John Bolin is the patriarch of the, the Bolin family and uh, married into the Davises and is part of why I'm here. You provide some pictures and talk a little bit about the, uh, the, the Bolin Springs General Store. And I really want to visit there now, actually. <laughs> now, now, now that you've kind of highlighted it on the map, next time I'm around that area, if that ever happens, I'm definitely going to stop by. Um, can you talk a little bit about the legacies of these family members for the rest of your kin and for you? Well, um, you know, that was my, my dad's side of the family on the, on my mother's side of the family was Thomas Jefferson Adams. And he was also a, a kind of patriarch. Um, he was a lawyer. He served on both of the uh, uh, council houses for Muscogee Creek Nation. He Boy, what didn't he do? He was a trustee who founded, co-founded a school. Uh, he had an oil and mining company that was hit the, the made the first oil strike in what would become Oklahoma. So they knew oil and minerals were there, but they hadn't struck them until he hired two Pennsylvania drillers to come down and uh, make that oil strike. So, um, boy, these these uh, relations were quite something to be proud of, um, and the stories got handed down over the years. Uh, one of uh, the Adams, which is my mother's side of the family uh, clan, was Annie Adams, who um, was a midwife for Muscogee and Okmulgee County, and she. Uh, assisted with birds all over the county and ended up raising sets of children for a time who's or taking them in uh, if the mother succumbed in birth. And so she was a wonderful character who smoked her cob 
pipe and cob corn pipe and and spoke uh, Muscogee, although she was apparently uh, Shawnee, Delaware, and part German and came into the territory with missionaries. So uh, I've got a very colorful, rich family uh, who kind of did everything. My grandfather worked the radio rodeo circuit. He could rope and ride and um, bulldog cattle. And uh, so they were, they were pretty interesting people. I'm glad you mentioned Thomas Jefferson Adams because he really is one of the indelible characters in this story. And I was amazed because, well, for one thing, you have a number of really great images throughout the book. But if, if I remember correctly, you have some striking images of him in particular. Um, could you talk a little bit more about Thomas Jefferson Adams and about his children? And sort of as a, a side to that, where did you find all these great pictures of these people? Well, most of the pictures are from the family. They've kept them yeah. over the years. That's amazing. Uh, uh, but he was, Thomas Jefferson Adams was uh, merited two pages in the um, 1891 uh, compilation of leaders and leading men in the of the Indian Territory. So we learn a little bit more uh, or a little bit more is confirmed about him, you know, having a big two-story house which he built and um, uh, really being one of the important people in uh, Indian territory and his so his sons were grew up in you know as leaders of the community as well Uh, one was a a representative of the tribe in Washington. He traveled many times to Washington. He read the congressional record. Um, He was there when John Collier came to um, Muscogee to to try and persuade the the Muscogee Creek to sign on to the Indian Reorganization Act. Um, And his son, Andrew, I, I talked about was uh, the rope rider and he had his cattle ranch with 600 head of cattle at one point. So um, we have a long, well-established um, legacy in the town of Beggs on that side um, and the, the town of Bowen Spring on my dad's side. And the final chapter of the book is about your more immediate family's story. Can you tell us a little bit about your mother and your father and about your own history as it relates to this kind of broader story about Oklahoma and about the United States that you've told? Well, you know, the both my mom and dad come from these prosperous uh, families Um who lived in this community where everyone got along, uh, red, white, black, and everything in between kind of mixed fluidly. And, um, they, their families were very happy to join each other because they were proud of their successes. They were well-respected in their communities and uh, in an interesting twist, we're actually related three times over because there were three marriages 
among the kind of Bowen Davis and um, Adams families. Um, so my mother and father coming together um, was was a, a, an interesting thing. And it put me in a position, therefore, to look at the different treatments that they received or that their families um, underwent as Cherokee freedmen in terms of land allotment and as Muscogee Creek, because the Cherokee freedmen, when they were allotted land, had um, certain restrictions placed on the transfer of the land. And while the um, Indians by blood had different restrictions and it kind of affected how much land they were given and whether or not they could, um, they could transfer that land. And that had long-term implications for the family and how they prospered. So by the time uh, my parents met and started to build a family, the Bolins, the, the Cherokee Freedmen side, um, had a steady business and they were consolidating their land and buying up adjacent land. Whereas um, times were harder for my mother's family, uh, who had once owned 5,000 acres around the town of Beggs. There's Adams Creek, there's Adams Cemetery, um, Adams Road. Uh, but her family's uh, prosperity sort of dwindled for a number of different reasons, which I talk about in the book. Uh, her father lost his ranch uh, due to both misfortune and swindle. Um, and by the time he was 44, for the first time in his life, he had to go out and find a job working for people who were um, not his family. And that was, that was something major in the family. We'd always been self-sufficient uh, and to have to go to work for somebody else was, was hard. So I grew up uh, hearing these stories and the book from, from my parents, from my relatives. And the book is one way to honor my parents, um, and their devotion to their families and their strong sense of home. Um, they're, they're, they really revered the place where they grew up and were so, um, unconditionally loved. And the book also includes quite a few, almost, I think, around 100 pages worth of transcribed primary sources. And I thought they were a real pleasure to read through. But I'm curious why you chose to include these in the book in the first place. Well, I never doubted that this project was uh, really formed a, a, a little known uh, but key slice of American history. And I wanted to honor that. Uh, I wanted to present all the pieces of this crazy puzzle together. Uh, for example, I wanted the reader to see the context in which officials recorded my great-great-grandmother stating that her daughter's father was her master, the, the Cherokee judge. 
you know, that's in the National Archives. And to read that on microfiche alone in your booth is one thing. Uh, but I wanted to share that because I think it's such a remarkable example of the American history that's been uncomfortable for us to go to, but is starkly there. So, you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding about our history. Uh, so much about uh, who we really are has been kind of distorted or erased. Someone else has told that story. Um, so I wanted to present both, you know, the personal stories, the photos and the the lovingly preserved obituaries um, alongside the official testimonies so that both general readers and experienced historians could engage with all of the materials. So people could, you know, so many people who claim Indian heritage don't know that these records are actually easily available. Mm -hmm. um, and some historians may now be able to look at these materials in a new light to reconsider them. So I hope this approach really kind of contributes something substantive to our ongoing racial discourse. I think it's, a, it's an important piece. And on a personal level, um, you know, I have a lot of relatives who have a stake in hearing their story told. And now our family history is documented for the ages, whether it contradicts, confirms, or resists the official accounts. Uh, everybody can now look at it um, and consider it for, for future generations. You know, uh, it's there for all to see. Well, I want to circle back on something that we started off with that you've touched on a couple times, including in, in your last answer to my last question a little bit, and that is that question of why you wanted to tell your family's story. Uh, what do you see as the history that this can teach other people about the American past and about the history of race in the United States? Or to frame the question another way, what takeaway do you hope people, readers, will come away from your book with? Well, I, I hope that they come away having sort of questioning who we who we really are as a nation mm -hmm. I, I think i think my family's story debunks a lot of stereotypes about people of color uh my ancestors were educated accomplished uh they were noteworthy they had resources land they helped build vibrant communities um where people got along People of every race got along. There, the, the sheriff in the town of Beggs, when presented with the Jim Crow laws, said, oh, you know, this is Beggs. We're not going to do that here. And I don't think people realize that that time and, uh, and that place existed for, for a while. So it would be great if um, people really considered that as well as why that history has kind of been erased. Um, you know, that racial, racial mixing is treated as though it's infrequent and aberrant somehow, uh, when in fact it's, it's woven into our past, I think, uh, in a way that, that's uh, really interesting. And from the policy point of view, I go back again to the 1890s 
uh, and a census of the five tribes that we've talked about um, when the um, when the census listed the total population of the five tribes in Indian territory, but they had three categories. One was Indian, the other was Negro, and the last was white. So where were the racial, racially mixed people? How did they fall in those categories? Well, uh, it wasn't by magic that, that those categories disappeared. It was for somebody's uh, self-interest. And I think we're, we're, that has a very long legacy to the, to the present. Um, and it, it was, I hope that readers can understand that there's a trajectory in the racialization of America and it has implications to our, our current kind of, um, uh, issues of polarization. So I think it's important, uh, you know, just, just that people understand that that's a, that's a key uh, point for in American history. And part of the reason why I thought it was so important to, um, to write, write the history. And I think Oklahoma in particular holds a particular key in that it was a place where people of color were prospering. So people from everywhere were flooding there, including blacks with money, white settlers, everybody. We all came together in Oklahoma. And yet with the advent of statehood and the first legislative act, the institution of Jim Crow laws, a lot of people then decamped and went elsewhere uh, to Texas, Mexico, California, and uh, there's even a, a, apparently a community that fled Oklahoma, a mixed race community that fled Oklahoma in Alberta, um, Canada. So um, I think that it, it's important to sort of understand how we were connected in Oklahoma and to maybe resist the idea that those those connections uh, were exceptional and and not not frequent. That's something I try to emphasize to my own students all the time. Is that you know if you look around the world today at the things that the the way things are today in all sorts of different realms of American life, that's not the only way that things could have turned out or that they have been historically, that the past is rife with examples of counter narratives and counter examples. And your book does a really good job of illustrating that, I think. Well, thanks. I'm glad to hear that because that, that just uh, was something that I felt very, very strongly that we are more connected than we think. Mm -hmm. And uh, we shouldn't allow others to manipulate the categories that they've imposed on us. Uh, we, we really have to redefine ourselves. And that's why in the book, I, I look to other countries because we've so erased our terminology about our connected past that um, maybe, maybe it's time to, you know, look at Brazil or South Africa to see how other communities 
present alternatives to the one that played out, that is playing out in the U.S. because it's continuing to evolve. Mm-hmm. Uh, our 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 community of of uh, our our country of very very people who come from very very different backgrounds and races. So Darnella, I know that this project had a very long gestation period, but now that it's complete, have you been working on anything new? Do you have another project that you've picked up uh, since since this book has been released last year? Well, um, I've been busy traveling around and, and uh, going to a lot of conferences. I'm an independent scholar, so uh, it's... it's uh, University of New Mexico Press has been great uh, in helping me, but it's up to me to kind of connect with uh, communities that I think will be interested in the project. Um, but I do have a, a journal article um, that's that's under review uh, called Widening the Road for Independent Scholarship and Personal Narratives. So that's in the works. Um, I also have many more archival uh, documents and files. I have diaries uh, written by uh, Uncle Leonard, who owned the store. He kept diaries for 25 years, uh, and his wife kept diaries. And I wasn't able to work that material into the book. There's also a huge, uh, a big shelf of uh, documents on my um, great uncle, Washington, who was the representative for the tribe, and I, I have not been able to, um, you know, really delve into that vast correspondence that he, that he was involved in. But um, what is growing in terms of my writing is that um, I really have become interested in considering our collective biography as uh, Tanahishi Coates puts it, um, in a global frame. And as someone who's traveled to every state except Alaska, and who's been lucky enough to visit nearly every continent, I've been around the world a, a, a couple of times, which is um, more than a couple of times, uh, which is, is enormously lucky. Um, but I've started to write a little bit about my experiences as a person of color who's navigating uh, a kind of emerging transnational arena. And um, as a woman of color who likes to explore, walking on foot wherever I go, um, I've got, uh, I've, I've, I'm really having an opportunity to see things and to think about uh, more and more about um, these explorations and the people I encounter and how they perceive me, uh, how comfortable or uh, tense my encounters have been. And I think that it might, might be of interest to people as a means of kind of, you know, building on the previous project where I, I talk about who we are and how we negotiate uh, with, you know, uh, counterfactuals to who we, who we are perceived to be. So um, it's important for me to, to begin to think about unpacking um, who we are 
and and what it is that really connects us. So that's that's a, a kind of nebulous project, but uh, it's getting firmer in my mind. Dr. Darnella Davis is a writer, a scholar, an activist, an artist, and a teacher. And her new book is Untangling a Red, White, and Black Heritage, a personal history of the allotment era, which came out in 2018 with the University of New Mexico Press. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast with me today, Darnella. Thank you, Steve, for having me. 